0: Please open your Bibles uh, to Philippians chapter 4. Once again, that's the book of Philippians chapter 4. Most of you have probably heard the story of Martin Luther and his dramatic stand at the Diet of Worms. If you haven't, either you've been missing church or you haven't been listening because I myself have mentioned it several times. April 1521. The headstrong rabble rouser from Wittenberg, the man the Pope compared to a wild boar ravaging the vineyard of God, he's summoned to stand trial before the Holy Roman Emperor himself and answer for his teachings. Luther is asked to recant his writings, and Luther declares with melodramatic flair. Here I stand. I can do no other. It's a moment that's etched in Protestant lore. The trouble is, it didn't exactly go down like that. The truth of the matter is that Luther's defiance was probably much more timid than we like to remember it. Luther had responded to the imperial summons expecting that he would have an opportunity to debate his positions. Instead, the examiner laid out a pile of his books and asked if they were his. Luther was caught off guard, and as he looked out on the imperial council, he was apparently struck by the gravity of the moment. He answered in a barely audible voice, The books are all mine, and I've written more. The examiner asked him, Do you defend them all, or do you care to reject a part? And believe it or not, Luther hesitated. He answered, this touches on God and his word. This affects the salvation of souls. Of this Christ said, he who denies me before me, men, him will I deny before my father to say too little or too much will be dangerous. I beg you, give me time to think it over. So Luther was given an evening to think about it. And The next day he was brought before the diet once again. He was asked the same question. This time he offered a qualified answer. First, he said, there were parts of his books that even his enemies accepted, those he could not reject. Likewise, he said, there were parts of his books that attacked the abuses of the papacy, and these also he could not reject. However, there was a third part of his writings in which he attacked individuals, and perhaps with a bit more bite than was needed, in this part he could admit was an error and he could reject. The diet wasn't satisfied. The examiner pressed for a clear answer to his question. He demanded, I ask you, Martin, answer candidly and without horns. Do you or do you not repudiate your books and the errors they contain? Luther answered, Since then, your majesty and your lordship desire a simple reply. I will answer without horns and without teeth. Unless I am convicted by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. May God help me, amen. According to the original eyewitness accounts, the words here I stand, I can do no other, were never even uttered by Luther, leading many historians to believe he never actually said them. It's kind of disappointing, I know. We like to think of Luther as this unstoppable force of nature, as this unshakable firebrand who is ready to burn the world to the ground if they would not let him preach the gospel. And there's some truth to that. He, most was, he was most definitely determined to preach the word of God, even if it cost him his own life. But at the same time, this doesn't mean there wasn't some measure of hesitation in his decision to break from Rome. There was. And if you can put yourself in his shoes, I think you can understand why. Two years before Worms, Luther appeared before a much less intimidating assemblage of religious faculty from two of Europe's leading universities in the city of Leipzig. It became known as the Leipzig Leipzig debate. And it would become a defining moment in Luther's emerging theological framework. By the end of the debate, Luther was beginning to publicly articulate for the very first time the doctrine that Protestants now call sola scriptura, scripture alone. And what really raised the issue for Luther was the realization that he agreed with a man condemned as a heretic by a church council about 100 years earlier. That man was John Huss, and he had argued many of the same points that Luther was arguing for, but without the same results. Uh, For instance, he attacked the sale of indulgences, he denied the supreme authority of the Pope. Late in the year 1414, Huss was summoned to appear before the Council of Constance, which was convened to settle a dispute known as the Western Schism. A few months later, he stood trial for his teachings. He was found guilty of heresy and burned. It had been generally assumed at the time that Huss was a heretic, and as Luther's opponent, Johann Eck, kept insisting that Luther shared his positions, Luther pushed back at first. I repulse the charge of bohemianism, he roared. Huss had hailed from Bohemia. Still, Eck kept insisting. Luther and Huss were in the same camp. The assembly, uh, the assembly took a recess for lunch. And Luther used the break to read up on what had happened at the Council of Constance. When the the debate resumed, Luther opened by declaring, to everyone's surprise, among the articles of John Huss, I find many which are plainly Christian and evangelical, which the universal church cannot condemn. And that, as you can imagine, is when things started to take a turn. The debate soon became so heated that Luther asked to speak in his native German tongue, believing that he was being misunderstood by those in attendance. And with it, he declared, I assert that a council has sometimes erred and may sometimes err, nor has a council authority to establish new articles of faith. A council cannot make divine right out of that which by nature is not divine right. Councils have contradicted each other, for the recent Lateran Council has reversed the claim of the councils of Constance and Basil that a council is above a pope. A simple layman armed with the scripture is to believed above a pope or council without it. As for the pope's decreto on indulgences, I say that neither the church nor the pope can establish articles of faith. These must come from the scripture. For the sake of scripture, we would reject pope and councils. Eck would have none of it. Throughout the ensuing debate, he kept peppering Luther with the question, are you the only one who knows anything? Except for you, is all the church in error? It was this same accusation that would be launched uh, at Luther at Worms as well. As Luther stood before the Diet on that second day of his hearing, right before he made his famous Here I Stand statement, his examiner asked him, Martin, how can you assume that you're the only one to understand the sense of Scripture? Would you put your judgment above that of so many famous men and claim that you know more than they all? And when you put it that way, I think you can sort of understand why Luther might hesitate to take his stand. Can you not? Luther was right. What he was saying was a matter of eternal life and death. And in light of the seriousness of his claims, who was he? to stand against the witness of so many former saints and scholars. I wonder if you were to put yourself in Martin Luther's shoes, and if Johann Eck were asking you, except for you, is all the church in error? How would you answer? Is it possible for a single Christian to go against the collective witness of the church. Is it really true that a simple layman armed with Scripture is to be believed above a pope or council without it? This is more or less the question that we're exploring this morning as we consider for now the fifth and final week in a row the idea of gospel-minded agreement from Philippians 4, verses 2 and 3. As Paul writes this passage, the church in Philippi is suffering some type of persecution for their faith, the church is apparently beginning to fracture under the weight of this pressure, and as Paul urges the church to resist and stand firm in one spirit, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, he singles out two women in particular, and he writes, chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, I entreat Euodia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. In this passage, Paul urges these two women to agree with one another. And from this exhortation, I've said we learn some of the essential elements to gospel-minded agreement. In week one, we discussed the attitude of gospel-minded agreement. Paul approaches this conflict with an attitude of trust, an attitude of unity, and an attitude of urgency. In week two, we took a look at the action of gospel-minded agreement, and that's to agree most specifically in the Lord. Jesus Christ and His instruction serves as the common ground for the Christian. He is to be the mediator of our disputes. But if you recall, this is where I said things start to take a turn. As we got to this point, I started to ask this question. What does it mean to agree in the Lord? After all, it's not as if we can just go and ask Jesus His opinion to settle our disputes. So what does this mean practically for Jesus to function as our mediator? Our gut reaction is to say, go to the Bible, use the Scripture, use the inspired Word of God to settle our disputes. But this is precisely the problem. Women like Yodia and Syntyche are already doing that. Remember, Paul doesn't appear to ascribe their disagreement to general unbelief or even sin, meaning they probably are submitted to the Scripture already, and they still can't agree. This happens often in the body of Christ. You have two sincere Christians who diligently search out the Scriptures and arrive at two very different conclusions regarding the same subject. So what do you do then? And that brings us to the apparatus of gospel-minded agreement, and that's the church. After imploring these two women to agree, to, agree in the Lord, Paul turns to the church and he says verse 3 yes I ask you also true companion help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life essentially he urges the entire church to get involved both corporately as a body and personally as individuals Every single person in the body is supposed to see it as their personal responsibility to help these women find agreement in Christ. How does this work practically and why does this work? This is something that Paul doesn't address in this particular passage, but it's something we started to explore last week from the rest of the New Testament. And the reason why we're doing this is because the church at large probably doesn't do a very good job at maintaining unity. And admittedly, there's some good reason for that. It doesn't only have to do with sin. It also has to do with the fact that this topic can become very, very messy. There isn't just one single passage that discloses to us how we need to approach the issue of disagreement in the church. Meaning if we just go verse by verse and only address what's directly in whatever passage we're dealing with, we're never going to get around to seeing the full-orbed answer to this question. And we do need to discover the answer to this question, because as I think we've seen clearly throughout Philippians, the unity of the church matters to Paul. Indeed, we've seen it is essential to the advancement of the gospel. So if we're going to be a people working to advance the kingdom of God in the world, we've got to learn the principles that govern gospel-minded agreement. I've said throughout that if we're going to understand the Scriptures teachings on this topic and teachings like this one, then we need to compare several different passages together at the same time. And we started last week by taking a look at Ephesians 4, 11-16 and Matthew 18, 15-20. What we learned from Ephesians 4 is that the reason why the church gets involved is because the body of Christ is made up of different members, each with different perspectives and giftings who are able to provide an objective perspective and shed new light on the situation i've said that part of the problem with saying that scripture alone should be consulted since the scripture alone is our authority is that you have flawed interpreters of course the scripture alone is authoritative but what does the scripture actually say That's not always easy to determine, since we're prone to distort the meaning of Scripture, both due to ignorance and sin. The beauty of getting the church involved is that it helps mitigate the weaknesses inherent in having a single interpreter. After all, the Holy Spirit indwells the entire body of Christ, and so while it's more than possible. For a single believer's perspective on any particular text or issue to be skewed by their sin, it's much harder for the entire body of Christ to be affected by the exact same sin. Meaning the body of Christ working in unison is much more likely to provide an objective perspective on a given topic than the individual believer is. Not only that, but the body of Christ also has a collective knowledge of the Scripture that far surpasses that of any single Christian. So when the body of Christ is working in unison, it's far less likely to make an error due to simple ignorance as well. So we can see why Paul would instruct the church to get involved, but how does this work practically? And that took us to Matthew 18, where Jesus lays out the process for mediation. There we learn that there's actually this increasing level of corporate involvement the longer and longer the dispute goes unsettled. That's really important because it means that when Paul urges the Philippians to each see this dispute as their problem personally, he's probably not urging them all to go and track down Euodia and Syntyche and try to resolve this dispute themselves. Instead, what he's probably envisioning is something very similar to what we find in Matthew 18. First, Euodia and Syntyche would try to resolve the problem themselves. And then, if that doesn't work, they would need to get two or three other people involved. And if they still can't agree, even still, then it needs to come before the church. The church is supposed to issue a ruling on the matter. And if the church takes the side of either woman, and the other refuses to listen, even to the church, then at that point, this trust that Paul has exhibited, wherein he assumes that each of these two women are approaching this issue in good faith, at this point, that trust probably needs to be reconsidered and the dissenting woman needs to be put out of the church and the reason for that is because Jesus indicates at the very end of that passage Matthew 18 that when the church approaches these issues in his name meaning when they come to these disagreements in submission and faith humbly seeking his will through prayer he will guide them through their decision He even tells the church, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, or more literally, shall have been bound, meaning it's already been decided. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Essentially, he tells them that the church's decision is binding. And to disregard the word of the church is to run the risk of disregarding the word of Christ himself. So then, going back to Luther once again. You can see the dilemma he was facing, can't you? Here is Eck telling him that his positions were condemned as heretical by a church council. That Jan Hus reached step four and was excommunicated for holding these same positions just a hundred years earlier. So who does Luther think he is to disregard the collective witness of the church? That's not an easy question to answer. Still, that's not to say that there's no answer to it. It may be a difficult question to answer, but there is an answer to it, and and that's what I want to now explore with you this morning. You see, on the one hand, I hope you understand the weight that you should give to the church's decisions. That's because I, I think it's rather commonplace for Christians today to give essentially zero consideration to the church's positions, opting instead to lean on their own understanding of the scriptures. I think you see this attitude on display when the church disagrees with them, and rather than that becoming an occasion for the Christian to pause and consider why they believe what they do, they choose instead to simply ignore the church's conclusions, or even immediately separate over it. There's no interaction, no discussion, no attempt to learn from the church. They don't pause and ask themselves, wait a second, is it possible that I'm wrong? Instead, they just automatically assume they're right and move on. In short, they're constantly setting the church under cross-examination and rarely, if ever, allowing the church to cross-examine them. And friends, I want you to understand that that mindset is incredibly dangerous. You are not an infallible interpreter of the Scripture. Not only that, but neither are you the first Christian to take the Scripture seriously. Eck is right on at least one point. There are many incredibly serious and studious Christians who've gone before us. And what I want you to understand is that this Matthew 18 process and promise is there to keep you safe. It's there to keep you from running off into serious sin or even heresy unawares. Like imagine if I got up here this morning and I tried to tell you that Jesus is not 100% God and 100% man. What if I said that he was merely a created being, perhaps an incredibly powerful angel, but still perfectly finite like the rest of us? Or suppose that last week I tried to argue that these apostate evangelicals that I've been talking about were right and that you should convert to the Catholic Church. You know, it's more than possible that I could give you a run for your money. I might be able to make an argument that sounds pretty convincing. After all, I've been to seminary I know the Greek and the Hebrew, I can start to pull that out and make my points there in a way that would be hard for you to refute without similar theological training. In short, it's more than possible that I could confuse you enough and put together an articulate argument enough that you may start to become convinced. And if so, it wouldn't be the first time it's happened, right? Right? Clever men have deceived Christians plenty of times before. There are even consistent warnings in the New Testament about this very thing. So what is it that keeps you, the layman, safe from someone like me in that kind of a scenario? And friends, the answer is the church. You should start to say to yourself, well, I don't know how to answer him exactly, but I know that the church condemned his teaching on the person of Christ at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. I know that other teachers, just as learned as him, and even more so, have stood toe-to-toe with guys like him, and together those leaders condemned his teaching as heresy. I know that my Protestant brothers, men like Martin Luther and John Calvin, as well as the many Baptist pastors that have preceded him, have refuted his conclusions on Catholicism, even if I myself don't have the answers at my fingertips right this second. And that kind of reliance on the witness of the church will keep you safe from making a very, very serious mistake. That's one of the real beauties of Matthew 18. I didn't really focus on this point much last week, but I want you to think one more time about the significance of what Jesus says when he says, with respect to the church, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Do you know where else Jesus makes that kind of a statement? It's two chapters earlier when he makes the same statement to Peter with respect to his apostolic authority. Jesus tells Peter that he will have the authority to bind and to set loose. That's referring to Peter's authority as an apostle. Well, guess who that authority is transferred to in Matthew 18? It's transferred to the church when they are gathered in Jesus' name. So it's not a transfer without conditions, but it is a transfer nonetheless. And by the way, just as an aside, this is partly what the Catholic Church gets wrong when they make their appeal to papal authority on the basis of apostolic succession. Scripturally speaking, if Peter's apostolic office transfers to anyone then clearly, according to Matthew 18, it's transferred to the corporate body of Christ, not to any one man or even to a group of men. It's transferred to the church itself. Listen, that's a real benefit to you. Because not only does that protect you from the deceptive influence of false teachers, since they would need to convince even the best and brightest in the body of Christ to follow their heresy to lead you astray. But frankly, brothers and sisters, it protects you from yourself. Again, you don't know everything, and your interpretations of the Scripture are not inspired, meaning you're prone to error, even serious error, if you're left to work your way through the Scripture on your own. That's the benefit of both the process and the promise of Matthew 18. You follow that process, and generally speaking, it will keep you from various very serious sins and even heresies. I want you to experience the benefit of that, which is why I've pressed so hard over the past couple of weeks to shake your confidence in your own interpretation of the Scripture. I want you to get into the habit of mistrusting your own conclusions and instead leaning hard into the witness of the church. Now, that said, Luther is still right, though, is he not? The church doesn't always get it right. That was what was so shocking about what he said at Leipzig. He said that councils sometimes err, that they have at times contradicted one another, and that for the sake of Scripture we should reject popes and councils. And well, he isn't exactly wrong, is he? I mean, just look at the plethora of denominations within Protestantism and all their different opinions about the Scripture. We, have all, we all have statements of faith which we've determined in council, in conference with one another, and yet we can't all be right, can we? At best, only one of us can be right, and more than likely, we're all only partly right. So it is possible, even for the church, to get it wrong. So where's the balance in this? Say you're Syntyche, and Yodia comes to you and says that she thinks you're in error. You spend some time reflecting on the subject, and you go back and look at the Scripture once again, and you disagree. You think she's in error. So the two of you ask for a couple of other people to get involved, and after talking it over, they side with Euodia. Supposing you're still not seeing it, and so Euodia and her companions bring it before the church, and suppose the church also sides with them. Or let's simplify it even further. Take that whole process out of it, because let's face it, it's not very common. The church doesn't really do that a whole lot today. So say you're in a church, and the leadership, in whatever form that takes, makes a questionable decision. At what point should you submit to the church's decisions? And at what point do you, like Luther, take your stand? That's the question that I want to try to explore with you at the time we have remaining here today. And as I said last week, I'm trying to triangulate in on several different New Testament texts to try to discern the Scripture's teaching on this subject. I'm, I'm not just saying, you know, this is what the Bible says. I'm trying to apply it. And my judgment in that regard is not flawless. It's more than possible. I've made mistakes somewhere in the process. In fact, this is a topic I'll tell you I've been wrestling with, with for several months and I keep struggling to completely articulate my conclusions on it. So I would strongly encourage you, listen with discernment. Check what I say here today against the Word of God. And if you think I'm wrong, please show me. I'm more than open to criticism on this topic. To make matters even worse, I've already eaten up a lot of the time this morning, so I'm going to have to be fairly concise. But hopefully, I think we've set up the discussion well. I'm going to try to come back around to some of the things we've talked about so far because I think this is going to help illustrate my points. So once again, when does the Christian need to defer or submit to the judgment of the church? And when ought they to hold their ground, even when they're not convinced from Scripture? Let's go ahead and find out. A passage that I'd like to focus on today is Romans 14, because I think this passage establishes a very important principle uh, to guide our discussion. If you would, please go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. Romans 14. A couple of weeks ago, I mentioned this evangelical leader who, after converting to the to Catholicism, he explained that one of the reasons he converted is because he realized that Paul is actually more concerned with unity than he is with the doctrine of justification. And as I commented on that, I said that he's partially right. Paul is incredibly concerned with the concept of Christian unity. I even said that when you really stop and think about it, the whole reason why Paul even gets into the topic of justification often is to use it to argue for the unity of the church. And the book of Romans was one of the examples I had in mind when I said that. We often think of Romans as an epistle on the doctrine of justification. But the fact is, it's actually an epistle about Christian unity. And Paul brings up the doctrine of justification to argue his point. He's writing to Christians that he's never personally met in Rome, and it would appear that they're wrestling with this issue that was so incredibly relevant to the early church, which was, uh, for lack of a better way of putting it, uh, how Jewish is Christianity? That's what they were wrestling with. And it would seem that here in Rome, you had a church mixed with Jews and Gentiles, and while the Gen- the Jews expected the Gentiles to adopt their customs, the the Gentiles were reluctant to get on board. They probably even saw themselves as in some way superior to their Jewish brethren since A, they were believing in greater numbers than the Jews, and B, they understood the grace of the gospel and their freedom in Christ better than their Jewish brethren. Paul writes to settle this dispute and he begins with the doctrine of justification. He explains, yes, salvation is by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. No, that doesn't mean that God's law doesn't matter or that God has rejected Israel. And no, it doesn't mean that we can just go and act however we want, even if we're not bound to the law of Moses. And then having established all this, he comes to his point in chapter 12, verse 1. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The emphasis there is on the unity of the church. Many bodies coming together as a single living sacrifice. And that continues to be the theme throughout the conclusion of the book. How to live with one another in spite of our differences. It's all very relevant to what we're discussing here in Philippians. Well, as he comes to Romans 14, he says this. to make him stand. He says, One person esteems one day better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. It would appear that the different theological backgrounds of the individuals involved in the church had produced a different set of convictions. There were those of a stricter background, and they were convinced that some things were sin, which were not actually sin. And then you had others of a better informed conscience and more accurate view of things. Paul urges them both to leave the other be. He tells the one with the overly sensitive conscience not to condemn the one who is better informed and vice versa. In verse 4 he explains why. He says, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands and falls. Basically, he points to the fact that each Christian is accountable to God and will have to answer for their actions to him. And this continues to be the governing principle that guides the rest of the chapter. He notes verse 5 that one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Verse 10, he asks, Why do you pass judgment on your brother, or do you not... Or or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. He states that instead of coercing others to perform according to your own convictions, the Christian needs to be sensitive to the conscience of others. And as he explains why, he says, verse 23: for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. That's important. Paul's saying, even if an action is permissible to God, even if it's permissible to God, if in your mind it's sin, then it's still sin. That's because even if it's not technically a sin, if you think it is and you're still willing to do it, then it demonstrates a willingness in your heart to rebel against God. Now, the main reason why I bring this passage up is because it establishes a very important principle And that's the doctrine that Protestants have historically referred to as private judgment. In a nutshell, private judgment is the belief that the Christian must act according to his or her own convictions, since they will have to give an account to God for their own personal faith. Just so you know, that's the antithesis of the Catholic system, which argues that the Christian is essentially saved through the faith and merits of other Christian saints. We don't believe that as Protestants. We believe that each individual Christian is personally accountable to God for his or her own conduct. This concept is established in places like Romans 14. And the reason why it matters in this discussion is because it means that the Christian is bound to obey their conscience first and foremost, regardless of what the church says. You go back to Martin Luther, for instance, at the Diet of Worms. And it was this concept that he appealed to. Again, the first day they asked him if he was willing to recant his works, and he answered, this touches on God and his word. This affects the salvation of souls. Of this Christ said, he who denies me before men, him will I deny before my father. To say too little or too much will be dangerous. I beg you, give me time to think it over. And after being given some time to think it over, he came back and said, unless I'm convicted by Scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they've contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. And then he closes it, may God help me. Amen. Do you hear that? Luther understood that he would have to give an account to Christ for his answer. That if he was right, and he recanted what he wrote, and denied the gospel there at Worms, then Christ would deny Luther before his Father in heaven. He believed that his very salvation was at stake in his answer, and so Luther had the witness of the church on the one side, and the witness of his conscience as he read the scripture on the other. And in the end, he recognized that the only safe place to go was according to the conviction of his conscience since it would be in accordance with his own faith that he would be judged before God. That is an entirely biblical approach to disagreement in the church. If the church makes a decision that binds the Christian to disobey their conscience, then the Christian needs to very seriously consider the church's judgment certainly, just as Luther did. But at the end of the day, if they cannot be convinced that the judgment is biblical, then they actually need to disobey the judgment of the church, since in the words of Paul, it is before his own master that he stands or falls. And this actually brings us to another reason why I bring this passage up. And that's because what this passage also shows us is that the church needs to be very careful and not binding the Christian to commands that are not clearly established by the Scripture. This is one of the keys of maintaining unity in the church. You can call it judicial restraint, for lack of a better term. In the words of Deuteronomy 4.2, the church needs to be careful that they neither take away from the Word of God nor add to it, since when they add to it, And attempt to bind the Christian to commands that are extra biblical, they force the Christian to act according to their conscience and drive a wedge in the body of Christ. Again, Paul is very specific here. He orders the church let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. That's significant because later on, Paul is going to side with the one who eats. He's going to indicate that they're in the right on this particular issue, and yet he's also careful to point out that they shouldn't pressure their brother to hold to their same level of conviction, since to do so would be to put that Christian in a position where they feel obligated to sin. If anything, what Paul indicates here in verses 13 through 23, and again in 1 Corinthians 8, is that in this scenario, the stronger brother, the more mature brother, is actually obliged to forego his rights for the sake of his brother. After all, while it is a sin for the weaker brother to eat unclean food, it is not a sin for the stronger brother to abstain from it. Meaning the stronger brother can actually adjust to the conscience of his weaker brother and not be in sin. And they can be united together to one another without offending the conscience of the other. So the church must be careful not to overextend its reach and attempt to add things to the Word of God, since to do that is to actually threaten the unity of the church. In fact, it's even more than that. It's a violation of Matthew 18. Again, I think Luther understands the issue well, and he navigates the difficulties of ecclesiastical authority brilliantly. During the Leipzig debate, for instance, he acknowledged that he would affirm the authority of the Pope if that authority had been decided by the Church Universal, which he stated had never actually happened and would never happen. But even then, he was careful to point out that the Pope's authority even then would derive from human right, not divine. He said, given that is to say, if all the rest of believers consent to it, this power might be conceded to the chief pontiff by human right. And I will not deny that if all the believers in the world agree in recognizing as first and supreme pontiff, either the bishop of Rome or of Paris or Magdeburg, we should acknowledge him as such with respect to this general agreement of the church. But as Eck pressed in on him and demanded him to explain why it would be a power derived from human right only and not by divine authority in this instance, Luther would clarify, Again, I read it earlier this morning. He said, I assert that a council has sometimes erred and may sometimes err, nor has a council authority to establish, listen to this, new articles of faith. A council cannot make divine right out of that which by nature is not divine right. Translation, unless you can show me in the scriptures where God has given the church the authority to establish new commands... The church does not have the authority to establish new commands because it can only possess that authority if it's been given to it by God. Or to put it still another way, what Matthew 18 shows us is that the church has the authority to interpret the Scripture, not create it. And so whenever the church attempts to create doctrines or commands where there are no doctrines or commands, or for that matter, whenever it tries to eliminate doctrines or commands where there are clear doctrines and commands, it is overextending its authority. And if it's overextending its authority, then clearly they are not gathered in Jesus' name since they themselves are being disobedient to the word of God. And their decisions in those instances are not binding. This would actually be another reason when you are not obligated to obey the church's decision. When it's making decisions in areas it's not been authorized to make. Practically speaking, this means that it needs to, the church, when I say it, I mean the church, the church needs to be able to substantiate its positions with Scripture. Because the Scripture is the authority and the church has been given to aid in its interpretation, not establish new doctrines. Again, that doesn't mean that you automatically must obey if it happens to be using the scriptures, since again each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. But at the very least you need to be coming with the scriptures, since the scripture is the final authority and the church is merely its interpreter. Once again, I like the way Luther said it. He's very precise. He said a simple layman armed with scripture is to be believed about pope or council without it. You hear that? He's not elevating the layman above the church in his interpretation of the Scripture. He's saying that a layman's interpretation of the Scriptures is more authoritative than the church's judgment without it. That's because the Bible is the final authority both in doctrine and in practice. So again, at the very least, a church must use the Scripture to substantiate its positions since it has only been granted the authority to interpret the Scriptures, not create them. So if a church tries to hold you to some decision without a scriptural basis, you're not bound to obey it. Though I would urge, again, just keep in mind, if the church isn't asking you to sin when it does this, if they're not causing you to violate your conscience in that erroneous decision, and if it appears that they're falling into this decision out of genuine concern and conviction, meaning it isn't some kind of power grab, which again would be a violation of Matthew 18, But if they're genuinely convinced of their error and they're not making you sin and asking you to do it, then again, just keep in mind that this passage may also indicate that you ought to be patient with your brothers and sisters and bear with them in their weaker conscience until they're convinced otherwise. But what if two brothers hold positions that are mutually exclusive? That's one question we could ask, right? What do you do then, supposing the church doesn't think that either is in sin? Say that the one who does not eat is convinced that he can't be in fellowship with the one who does. And suppose that on the other hand, the one who doesn't eat is convinced that not eating does serious harm to the proclamation of the gospel. And if you think about that, in that instance, they're both wrong on at least one account, but, but neither is necessarily in sin to act according to their conviction. And to go against their conviction is to encourage disobedience to God. So suppose you go and try to convince them each of their error, but they still can't see it. What happens then? Well, in that scenario, the church needs to issue a ruling and allow the other Christian the freedom to act according to their own conscience. In this particular instance, the one who eats isn't wrong to eat. And neither is he wrong to refuse to give up that right, since in his mind that would violate his conscience. So to require him to abstain from eating is wrong on two accounts. One, it's a violation of his conscience. And two, I think even more importantly, it's actually adding to God's commands. It's not adding to God's commands to say you should abstain from your freedom for the sake of your brother, but that's not what's being asked here. Here the believer doesn't feel free to eat, but bound to eat. And to tell him he can't when the Scripture says he can is to overextend the authority of the church by adding to the Word of God. So again, the church needs to issue the appropriate ruling and then allow the brother who does not eat to go his way and separate without giving him trouble for it. And this is a point I really want you to understand as we close out this series on Gospel-Minded Agreement, which I think you really could say started all the way back at the beginning of chapter 3 as we discussed this notion of theological downgrade the thing i really want you to understand is as important as unity is not all separation is bad i know i've been really hammering away on the importance of unity but as important as unity is it isn't all important there are moments when it's perfectly fine to separate in fact the bible actually commands us, for instance, to separate from those who deny apostolic teaching. 2 John 3, 9, for instance, says, Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. And then he continues, verses 10 and 11, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. So obviously we're supposed to separate from apostates. Not unbelievers per se, right? Since then we'd have to go out of the world. But from anyone who bears the name of brother while in their apostasy. We're called to separate from them. And this really isn't even a separation since due to their unbelief in the gospel, we actually have nothing in common. And that's why we separate from them, both to prevent their error from spreading into the church and to demonstrate to the world that we're not actually on the same team. But even the brother, even the brother who, while not denying the gospel, still rebels against some component of clearly apostolic teaching, the Bible tells us to separate from them as a means of calling them to repentance. 2 Thessalonians 3, for instance, Paul notes that some have disobeyed his example in attempting to mooch off the church. In correcting this, he says, verses 14 and 15, "...if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter..." Take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. That's clearly a Christian that Paul is talking about. And he's saying keep your distance from him as a way of warning him about his error. So clearly it isn't always bad to separate. There are instances where the Bible calls for it. Unity is important, but it isn't all important. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, yeah, but what about this brother who thinks it is a sin to eat unclean food? Isn't this encouraging him to separate since by definition, isn't he probably convinced that it does go against apostolic tradition to eat? And won't that lead him to separate from those who do as a way of warning them, even after the church has told him that he's wrong? And won't this cause the church to fracture exponentially? And perhaps it will encourage him to separate but I don't think this means that it will cause the church to fracture exponentially. And I'll tell you why. You see, the more I've wrestled with this topic of unity and when to separate and when not to separate, the more I've become convinced that so much of the confusion around this issue comes from the fact that Christians have a vision for the church that isn't grounded in the New Testament. And I'm speaking primarily about the concept of denominations or at least the view that believes that some type of ecclesiastical authority exists above the local church. You look in the New Testament and it's simply not there. I'd actually probably put this in the category of the church overextending its authority by trying to establish an organizational structure above the local church and holds believers to that structure. It sounds noble to fight for a visible universal church but it's just not biblical. God has not instituted that kind of a structure. And when you start tackling passages like Romans 14, I think you can understand why. The beauty of the autonomous local church is that it allows the brother with a weaker conscience to act according to the convictions of his conscience and hold himself separate while enabling him to treat those who disagree with him as brothers meaning he doesn't have to justify his separation by excommunicating the other, which is what he would be required to do if he's bound to the belief that there's only one local or visible church. Instead, he can enter into fellowship with believers who share his convictions while still regarding the other brother as a brother. You see what I'm saying here? He doesn't have to view his brother as an apostate and break off all communication with him. Instead, he can hold himself apart and warn him as a brother. Listen, that at least keeps the lines of communications open, which allows the church to work towards unity while at the same time actually preserving the unity of the church by acknowledging its diversity. I would compare the system that I think we find in the New Testament to what the founding fathers had in mind when they created the United States. The power to govern was supposed to rest with the states, not the federal government. And these states then joined together as one for the national defense. The original motto of our nation even captured this concept, e pluribus unum, out of many, one. And the idea behind this design was that each state would function as its own independent experiment. Things uh, that you know could be done differently, they could govern differently. And then as the policies enacted by one state proved beneficial, the others could choose whether or not to follow that design. It's really a very beautiful and brilliant concept. And it's one that I think we find in Christ's design for the church. Our unity is supposed to come out of our diversity. And that's why I say the church needs to allow the weaker brother to go his way and separate without giving him trouble for it. It's not only because I think the Bible commands this, but I think it's also a system that the Bible has established for the church to grow in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. After all, guess what you may discover about that weaker brother after you let him follow the convictions of his conscience and enter into fellowship with his like-minded brothers? What you may discover over time is that he's not the weaker brother after all. You are. His convictions were right, and you just couldn't see it at the time. And by the way, when the church does this, when we separate from one another while still tolerating each other, that does actually maintain peace in the body of Christ. And it does actually serve as a testimony to the world. I know a couple weeks ago, as I told you about the bloodshed of the 30 years war, I made it seem as if modern religious freedom was a secular response to turmoil going on inside of the church. But honestly, that's not the whole picture. Listen, there's a reason why the idea of religious freedom arose in Protestant nations first and that it arose while these nations were still largely influenced by the church. And it's because religious freedom is rooted in the Protestant ideal of private judgment. And do you know what that system does? It allows Baptists and Methodists and Anglicans to all live in the same country without going to war with each other. Listen, do you think that provides a good testimony to the world or a poor one? I'd say it provides a good one. Friends, that's what a biblical view of separation does. It actually preserves the peace and the unity of the church instead of dividing it. Yes, it would be better if we were all completely unified in our thinking, but this is clearly a work in progress. In the meantime, the very best thing we can do is fellowship with those who share our most basic convictions in local fellowships and work out our faith together. All to say, yes, this position may encourage the brother to separate. But no, I don't think this leads to the exponential fragmentation of the church, because this whole idea that the Christian church must agree with one another a hundred percent of the time is a false presumption. It's an ideal that we're certainly working towards, but we can't get there by force. In fact, if you notice in this passage, Paul doesn't urge Yodia or Syntiki to submit or defer, does he? He urges them to agree, to think alike in Christ. We have to actively work to convince one another to be of the same mind. And separation doesn't preclude that possibility. Ironically enough, if it's done with the right attitude, I think it encourages it. And with that in mind, we're going to close our discussion. Of gospel-minded agreement. Unfortunately, we lack the time today to get into comprehensive discussion of biblical separation as a whole. If we were to do that, it would take us several more weeks and it would lead us way, way out of Philippians. But at the very least, this should hopefully address the questions that come up as we consider the mediation process that we assume would occur with Iodia and Syntyche here in Philippians 2 through 3. The church should get involved, perhaps even bring the matter before the entire church and issue a ruling and either Yodia and Syntyche or both probably should submit to that ruling but if the church either overextends its authority by drawing conclusions that are not founded on the scriptures or if either woman is still convinced by her own conscience that it would be sin to submit to the church's ruling that she does not need to submit and in that instance the church needs to do what they can to let her act according to the conviction of her conscience without themselves violating the scripture and I believe those are the principles that should guide you as you work towards agreement in the church as well of course the attitude that's supposed to guide all of this is love and with that in mind I want to close with a reading from Colossians 3, 12 through 15 the apostle Paul writes put on then as God's chosen ones holy and beloved, compassionate hearts kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called to one body, and be thankful. Let's pray.